because you're jumping back into the gut. All right. Hey, Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome Arizona State Professor Rob Gray, who has been conducting research on teaching and courses related to perceptual motor skill for over 25 years. Rob is host of Perception in Action podcast, perceptionaction.com, and author of How We Learn to Move, A Revolution in the Way We Coach and Practice Sports Skills, a must-read book for all coaches. Gray has strongly emphasized the communication and dissemination of scientific knowledge in the Perception in Action podcast and has helped bridge the gap between theory and the field. With over 350 episodes and 2 million downloads, it has become a critical resource for individuals working in areas including coaching, talent development, training, and rehabilitation. There is no doubt his new book as well will join that list. Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Big fan. Uh, I've listened to your podcast for as long as you've done it. Uh, just tremendous resource for, especially for a coach like myself, to keep up, keep up to date on knowledge that I don't have time to necessarily research and read journals, even though I like reading them. <laughs> um, but uh, let's talk about the book and the podcast. Why should coaches listen to your podcast and why should coaches buy your book? Because I think they should. Oh, thank, I thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I think there's a lot of really interesting new ideas for how to coach, to design practices, um, you know, really fundamentally changing the role of the coach. Uh, you know, I try to put it in the book from instructor where I know all the answers to more of a designer and a guide where you help an athlete find their own solutions. And so I think there's a lot of really interesting research and ideas out there for how you can add this to your practice. And I, I really believe there's so many benefits to it, whether you go full bore and, and dive in like I, like I do, or whether you just make some changes like adding more variability to your practice. Um, you know, it's more fun and engaging, reduces injury, chance of injury. So, so I really, I think, you know, just at least visiting these ideas and even thinking about why, even if it gets you to think about why you do some of the drills you do and, and really dive into that, I think it's, it's beneficial. Well, I love how you come across and you, and you don't come across as judgmental of coaches. You don't come across and I try and do the same. I don't say anyone's wrong, <laughs> but the question is, can we do better? And the answer is mm -hmm. yes. So maybe highlight some of the ways where coaches you feel can do better. Yeah, I, I really believe that as well. And I'm not, I, I consult and I do a little coaching game, but I'm not a coach either. So I would have no business <laughs> saying someone's wrong, but I think we can do better by, for, for a few different things, you know, especially, you know, in the practice sessions, you know, getting more interactions between players, taking advantage of, you know, play, people have so much time to practice at home by themselves now, especially kids. When you have a chance with everybody together, use it. Use that chance instead of having doing kind of uh, reductionistic drills of, you know, passing and dribbling around cones or something like that. So I think that's advantage, I think. And then there's just so many kind of fun make, making things more game like um, I think there's motor learning research shows it just it's more beneficial for skill development and it's also more engaging and fun for the athletes. So I think, you know, simple changes. The biggest one is just, yeah, kind of making things more game-like by keeping, you know, you know, 
instead of doing a decomposed dribbling drill, try to do a small sided game or something like that. And, and then just adding variability too. instead of doing a ton of shooting from the corner threes, you know, let's get some uh, posed practice, you know, or shooting, you know, different kind of things. So, so I, those are kind of the basics, I would say. Well, and most of the coaches that listen to the podcast understand some of these things that I've shared as well. And I love that you, first of all, coaches, if you listen to the podcast and read the book, Rob makes it practical. And that's where a lot of sport researchers, I would say, fails the wrong word. That's too strong, but they don't necessarily connect it in a practical way. And you do such a great job making it practical for us by giving us examples. And obviously just, again, you thinking out loud and sharing that thought with us. Yeah, that, thank you. And the real kind of theme in the book is, is exploration, right? And I'm still exploring. I don't know all the answers by any means. I'm still exploring these ideas. And yeah, that, that's really what I wanted to accomplish with the book. The book, more so than the, the podcast, if you kind of dive in at the most recent episode, it's pretty deep into the weeds, right, of, of, of the terminology and the technique, because I think I'm on 370 or something by now. But the book is kind of meant of more of a starting point to get you thinking about these different ideas, the, the importance of variability and in, in movement and the moving away from the repetition and the one correct way to do things. So, so that, yeah, that's really what I wanted to try to accomplish with the book, uh, give people a, a, a entry point to these ideas. Well, going back to what you said before, I frame it as player-led versus coach-led development. And too often we do a disservice as coaches to ourselves when we go into practice and we run drills and do things with players where they could do those on their own. The blocked, isolated dribbling reps, as you referred to already. They don't need us for that. They need us to connect perception and decisions with skill. So talk to us more about that part of it. Yeah, I think one of the key words you said right there, decisions. Like, you know, all, almost any team sport, we, you know, what we want is, you know, we're dying for creative players that can create scoring opportunities by making good decisions. Then you go to practice and how often do you let an athlete make a decision Right. Usually they're all scripted plays. They know what's going to happen. You tell them where to pass or whether to shoot or not. So letting athletes make decisions, I think, is a really big designing practice where they get lots of opportunities to interact and make decisions, I think, is critical. And, yeah, I think, you know, the idea that, you know, the, 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 we don't know the, an, the right answer as a coach. We, we, we can help guide them, and we know some of the things that probably won't work or might cause injury. But, you know, the kind of letting people, you know, the term we use is self-organize, okay? kind of letting things work out on your own, basically. Well, and that's hard for coaches, right? Because we're used mm -hmm. to giving this really implicit instruction and then the players execute that implicit instruction. And then that is the answer. And what mm -hmm. you're basically saying is that we shouldn't necessarily always coach to our solution, that we should co-create solutions with players. And that is really our role as a coach, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think that that's a great co-create is a great word. And, and co sometimes use co-adaptive, the idea that we're working together as a, um, you know, not the old version is you're coming to me as a coach. I have all the answers. I'm just going to tell you, you're a very passive sponge, <laughs> um, you know, versus let's work together and try to, uh, to come up with a solution. And yeah, and the growing, you know, the, I try to, you know, in the first couple of chapters of the book, I try to dispel the idea that there's one correct way to do things, you know, and I think everybody knows this, right? I was talking with someone else, like if I blocked out and just showed you like a uh, uh, movement, you know, patterns of different people shooting in basketball, you could probably tell 
that's Stephen. Oh yeah, that's Stephen Curry. That's it. Yeah. Right, without being able to see the face because they're not doing it the same way. There's lots of different ways to shoot. There's lots of different ways to dribble, you know? So the idea that there's one correct way that you get from a coach, I really think we need to move away from that. So I want to come back to shooting and talk about that a little bit, but before we do, here's another thing I get all the time is, and maybe I'll get your thoughts on what is holding coaches back from embracing more of these evidence-based ideas. But I, I share it around this aspect that you've already referred to, which is if I'm a coach, where do I start? Like, where do I start? Even if I now understand and, and see the value of what you're saying, it's really changing their whole approach in some ways. And they don't have to do it all at once, right? Mm -hmm. For sure. It is a tough, you know, it's a tough thing. And I totally recognize the pressures on coaches have to get these kind of short term, you know, getting people proficient in the short term. I've actually had people, coaches tell me that, you know, they, they try these methods and sometimes the parents complain to them that they seem like they're doing nothing. You know, what am I paying you all this money yeah. for? You're <laughs> just standing around letting yeah. them play. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, the start, I think is just, you know, I'm not saying completely abandon overnight what you're, mm -hmm. what's working for you, you know, just start to think, I think adding the variability, how can I change the conditions a little bit um, to get people, you know, shooting from different angles, different positions, different things. And then trying, can I make a game out of this? And, and I think those are where I would start. And I, once you kind of get into that, it kind of evolves, <laughs> I think, uh, for people. But, you know, I recognize what, what I, you know, really want to try to get away from. And it, this is a hard sell for coaches, a lot of coaches. The idea that you have to have the fundamentals before you can play. Like the idea you have to dribble a basketball before you can play basketball. You know, I, I really think that's a fundamentally flawed. It's something we stick to because it's safe and easy. But I really think, you know, that, that's something that's hard for sometimes coaches to move away from. Especially for youth level coaches. It's really mm -hmm. hard to see that. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's this case. Do we have to perfect the skill before they use it in a game? And mm -hmm. absolutely not. And honestly, isn't it better to not perfect the skill? <laughs> yeah, I think because to me, it's not really the skill. <laughs> the, yeah, the, totally. You know, the idea that, you know, I always give, you know, the agility, whether it's dribbling a basketball or a soccer ball, it has a purpose, right? It has a purpose. I go left with the ball because you're coming at me to my right trying to steal it, right? It, it's linked to the information from the other player and the environment. Um, when I do a decomposed fake drill around cones or the coach tells you when, which way to go, then you've removed all functionality. I call that fake agility. It's not really skill to me. It's aesthetic, right? It looks good, <laughs> but you need, you, and everybody knows in every sport, some players that are unbelievably technically good at dribbling between their legs and around the back. And then you get them in the game and they're useless because they don't know how to take advantage of space and pass and when to shoot and things like that. So we ultimately, we know this, and I think we intuitively know this, the decision is more important than the skill. But when I say that, people kind of freak out because obviously the skill, skill, skill is such a big part of it. But what we're saying there is that do we really care what layup they shoot as opposed to we care that they made the right decision to shoot the layup because they had an open window to be able to shoot the layup? Yeah. Yeah. The idea is that, um, you know, if we create uh, practice conditions in which, you know, that you need that layup. You, it will emerge, right? You don't need to give it to you first. And I have this story I love in, in my book. Um, James Rudd uh, told me he's 
he, he did this where he evaluates fundamental movement skills in kids. And he was trying to get this girl to gallop, kind of run like a horse. And, and she couldn't do it at all. And eventually he said, oh, you did great. Thank you. And he let her go. And then the kids started playing together and she was playing tag and she ran down a hill to try to catch someone. And she perfectly did the movement he wanted. The gal, because it was functional then, it stopped her from falling, right? So something's functional and, and it'll emerge. That's the idea. You don't need to give it to people first. If it's important and you need it, like keeping the ball protected when you lay up you, and you design the right the drills, the practice conditions, you, you'll learn that. It'll emerge, yeah. A basketball closeout is a great example of that, that mm -hmm. we overcoach it and mm -hmm. we overcoach it before it ever gets a chance to emerge. And essentially, it's a pretty simple action, isn't it? It's run and stop as fast as you can. And then mm -hmm. the rest of it is all based on decisions about how you're covering, who you're covering, where you're forcing the ball. Those are all decisions, but the actual mm -hmm. physical action is not that hard. And in your mind, that could emerge naturally if we create the situation. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the, this is where the really one of the real big approaches in, the, in this view, the constraints led approach, right? That's, mm -hmm. you know, as a coach, the, 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 the kind of myth we want to dispel with this too, is it completely hands-off coaching, like that the coach doesn't do anything, right? If you have athletes doing something, you have a practice activity and they're doing layups where they, you know, they're keeping the ball way out to the side that could be easily stolen or something like that. You, you as a coach, it's still your job to say, okay, that solution is not going to work in the long term, and uh, in, in a real game, in a better, or when they're faster players. So I can create a practice condition that takes that away from them, right? So it's still the job. You, your job as a coach is more to guide and push them <laughs> and mold the solution rather than here is how you do this technique. Now let's play basketball. That's kind of the, the idea. Well, and the other idea is that now your interventions as a coach are in the context of the game mm -hmm. and that makes it more powerful, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think going back to that, you know, it's, it's coupled, the word I like coupled to the information, it's driven by the information. Um, it also makes, you know, uh, them more adapt. I call it, you know, adaptable versus adjustable, right? If you give someone the technique, you know, I teach you like the example in golf I use, you know. I teach you how to hit a golf ball off the flat ground and practice the stroke over and over again. Then you need to adjust it for downhill lies and uphill lies and stand versus if I get you to just play in a bunch of different conditions, you, you will learn to adapt your movement to different uh, constraints rather than the learning the one technique that you have to adjust later on. So I think it makes you more flexible, adaptable. You can adapt when you, you're shot, when you get fatigued. Right, your jump shot. Um, when you start to get fatigued, you, your body, you learn how to make the adjustments in it in that you need. Hey, coach! Brief interruption from the podcast. Have you heard of Spotify Green Room? Spotify Green Room is a free audio-only social media platform for sports fans. Start enjoying ongoing conversations, watch games together, react to the biggest news, rumors, and games. Talk with other sports fans, insiders, athletes, and executives in real time. I host a room every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Come through and talk with me live. All you need to do is download the Spotify Green Room app free in the iOS or Android app store. Create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the conversation. Follow me at B-Ball Immersion on Twitter to be notified when my room goes live. This is awesome. I, I love talking about this. And uh, <laughs> you talked about it will emerge. And there is also a leap of faith for coaches. And we've actually done two big presentations in our community for coaches to be able to tell them how do they know it works. Mm -hmm. And the, the simple answer I give to coaches is 
we know basketball transfers to basketball. More mm -hmm. the question is, how do you know three-man weave transfers anything, as an example? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you address this a little bit in terms of how does a coach know it works? Yeah, that's a real, a real tough question. And, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, when we still need kind of good ways to, you know, evaluate in the short term, whether we're leading people on the right path. And, you know, I, I talk about, I think, you know, just having the, the right components, what we know from transfer, you're right, is you have to have very, very similar um, conditions for any kind of transfer to happen. And so, you know, I think, as a coach, you know, the, the key, you know, it, the other point I like to make is, although we're recognizing there's not one correct way to do things, there's individual variation, there are some key features, you know, I sometimes I call it invariance that have to be there, right? So one way that I think you can evaluate, is this going in the right way is, are those there, right? You know, for a sh jump shot to be successful, you have to have, you know, there's some, you have to release the ball at a certain angle, you know, there's got to be certain features there. So that's one way that I, I kind of think of it. And then just, you know, the weave, you know, example, again, is, you know, very choreographed. <laughs> that reminds, you know, sometimes when I go to practice, I, I observe practice and then I say, oh, that's a nice dance recital. <laughs> when does practice start? Not that I'm putting down dance as any being skillful, but no decisions, no unpredictability. Everyone knows exactly what's going to happen. That's not sports, right? That's not right. what's happening in sports. Well, basketball is not memorization. And that, no. and that's your point, right? Yeah. It's not memorization. So when we do drills that we prescribe something, they memorize it, they do it. We feel yeah. that they're getting better. But the reality is which, when you say transfer as well, you mean transfer from practice to competition, yeah. Yeah, which is exactly. the ultimate test of all this, isn't it? Yes, for sure. I think. And uh, you know, we want to get you better in the game and, and, um, you know, I think there's, a, there's some interesting ideas too, with, uh, you know, in at the teamwork level, you know, memorization, one of the kind of movements also we're making, I didn't talk about it too much in the book, um, is this idea of from moving from memorizing plays, right. Where a coach draws out a play on a, on a board where, you know, you do this, when this happens, you do that to, to what we call shared affordances. So affordances are kind of opportunities that for action. So what we want to see is the point guard sees the same thing at the same time as the center does. They both see, oh, the, the defender left the hoop undefended. The point guard lobs the pass at the same time the center. It's not a scripted play. They just both saw the same opportunity because you gave them practice at picking up opportunities, not just running scripted pass here when this happens place, right? So that's, that's another big thing we're trying to move to. So I frame it as structured unstructure in a sense, because I don't want coaches to kind of think that some of these blocked reps aren't necessary because mm -hmm. they bring comfort and confidence to you as the coach, but also to your players, right? But ultimately with whatever structure we have, we want it to, we don't want to stay there. Mm -hmm. And that's basically it with block practice, right? Block practice isn't wrong, but we don't want to stay there. For sure. Yeah. And I think that's an important point. I think you know, we're recognizing, you know, we need to periodize training, skill training, just like we periodize physical training. You know, you can't, all of it can't be about skill development and changing and right that, that would be exhausting. And then also right before a big game, you don't want to start, let's work on your three point technique, right? That would be not the best idea. So yeah, we can have practices that are more focused on getting confidence, feeling the, you know, rather pressure, which might be more block things. We might have slightly more blocked um, 
practice at, you know, when we're starting out with a, a player that's really novice. Um, there's a good, uh, I would point it to Stephen Curry posted a thing on Twitter where he was doing the exact same jump shot from the corner uh, every time passing the ball. And everyone's like, look, block repetitions, how he got good. And then he came out and said, that's what I do before a game, just to yeah. kind of get warmed up, feel good. In practice, I, I do shots from all over the place. I do wind sprints between shooting sessions. So I get fatigue. Like he's, so he's adding variability, exactly what we're kind of arguing. Yeah. Well, totally. And, and that I know with Steph's uh, dribbling routine, everyone always points to that. He does two ball dribbling. And I'm like, okay, again, he's doing these things for his comfort and confidence prior to the game. And we as coaches should create all those environments or conditions for players to be comfortable before a game, shouldn't we? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think we ha you have to recognize, you know, okay, what's the purpose of this practice session? We just want people to feel comfortable and confident. Then we don't want to have a lot of huge variability and chaos. And and that's another point, point I try to make in the book, you know, learning is about, uh, it's messy. It's about making mistakes, right? When everything, if your team perfectly executes every drill you did in practice, a practice session, they didn't learn a single thing, <laughs> right? Learning requires making mistakes, you know, searching for different solutions. Um, so when you want to really focus on learning and improving a specific thing, then yeah, you need that versus, you know, let's, Right before the game, let's focus on confidence and things like that. Talk to us about progressions, because I'm a big believer that the way I grew up with all these progressions, that it actually slowed down and hindered my learning, as opposed to what some people call this hard first instruction or exposing them at an optimal level to, as you've talked about, like the game condition. Then you can always go backwards, right? And mm -hmm. there's more value th to that than building up slowly through progression. Yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of benefits to getting people right in the game. And then, you know, whether, you know, there's a good, good example in the book from tennis, right? You know, uh, you know, kids have, you know, the typical progression, let's you hit the ball that I toss from a short distance that I move and it's boring. <laughs> it doesn't really get to what we want. Instead, we, we change the equipment, you know, in basketball, we can lower the hoop, get you playing right away instead of focusing on the fundamentals and trying to build up to the actual game. I'd, I, I agree. I'd much rather get you in the game. And then as a coach, okay, they're not, you know, they, they have to look down at their hand, their hands when they dribble, they're not, you know, let's okay. Now let's add a constraint or something to get that behavior out, right. Pull it out. Right. As we see it. Well, I want to get to constraints and dive mm -hmm. deeper because I think that's one of the most important things that you've shared uh, to, to, for practically for coaches. The other part of this that you mentioned is boring. And I love mm -hmm. that word because again, like practice is not always exciting and we don't pretend that it is like we, there's some, these repetitions that are necessary, but when you use this games approach or whatever you call it, players tend to enjoy it more, don't they? Cause they feel that they're more connected to playing the game. Yeah, I think so. I, I, I really do. And I, I'm biased obviously of in course. this. I mean, in this, but I, you know, I work with a lot of coaches that have made this change and uh, I've had several tell me that as soon as they change this, they can hear the difference. They can hear the difference in what, how the kids are talking to each other, the excitement and right. It's, it's more fun. <laughs> and I, I, I'm one of the big motivations I had for the book is, you know, I think we're chasing a lot of kids away from developing a love of movement you know, because of this elite sports model, right? If you can't 
master dribbling around, you know, this dribbling drill, then kids are like, oh, I'm uncoordinated. I'm not sporty. And they go out of, they never pursue anything like that again. They get chased away. Whereas if we made it more fun and I think, I think we would definitely keep more people in. So yeah, that, that's a big, I think for sure. Well, I think that's a greater conversation that I hope maybe I'll have with you sometime <laughs> because I just thinking and go, how many youth coaches make players, you know, or, or essentially not make, but they, they turn players into non-offensive players. Mm-hmm. And essentially like, if I'm thinking about, I'm an eight to 12 mini basket player and I never get to play offense. I'm probably not going to be retained in the sport. That's mm-hmm. no fun. And when you play these small-sided games and these decision games, you get offensive reps and defensive reps and two-way coaching reps every single time you're playing, right? Yeah, for sure. I I think the word I like to use is amplify, right? Mm -hmm. We're just, instead of having a, you know, full game, you don't get many opportunities sometimes to scoring opportunities to, especially in things like soccer, but in basketball too, keeping the court less players in a smaller area you're constantly you know facing other players and having to make decisions and having opportunities to be creative and things like that okay so let's get into constraints because i love all this (laughs) first of all let's let's start on a simple level what is a constraint what's a constraint-led approach okay so so the idea is that you know if we're going to accept there's not one correct technique then there's multiple different ways to shoot right um you know, I could shoot with underhanded with my, just my left hand with, you know, through from my chest, um, a constraint. So there's all these different solutions, these, and, uh, you know, Bernstein called this the degrees of freedom problem. How do I choose what to do? And constraint is something, the reason we use that word, which sounds kind of weird, is it something that takes away one of the solutions, right? Um, you know, so uh, it takes away and actually pushes you to, to do another one. So if I put a big barrier in front of you in, in basketball, then I can't use the solution of an underhand shot. I can't use a low launch angle of the ball. I, I've a constraint of a, a barrier in front of me is taking away some of the solutions and getting me to explore other ones. So that's kind of the fundamental idea. And then the idea is there's, there's individual constraints you bring, you know, your height, your flexibility, you know, a short per, five foot, like my, I, there's, I can't do certain things that a six, five person can do. Um, and then there's task constraints, which is the main thing the coach manipulates. And then there's environmental constraints. You know, what's the surface of the court? Is Are we playing outdoors in the wind? Things like that. And, and to clarify this, this is only random to the players. The coach knows what they're doing. And that's the idea of the constraints, right? That the coach knows what they're manipulating and what they're trying to shape from the constraint. Yeah, to, to yes, definitely. The coach has kind of a uh, the constraints, you know, one constraint is the number of players, right? So a small side of game is manipulating that constraint. There's obviously, there's, there's some constraints the coach doesn't have control over um, always, but there are main ones, yeah, they want to manipulate. Um, you know, and, and like I said, it, constraints is purposeful. Uh, you're, you're at, you add a constraint, um, you know, you know we, if, for example, you know, say you wanted to, as a basketball coach, you wanted to emphasize, you know, uh, pressure, on the other team once after they get the ball, you could add a constraint. Okay. You get, you get four points when you score after a turnover versus two, when you in regular point, you know, so you can add this constraint. You're not telling them what to do. You're just giving them something to encourage a different kind of pattern explore different ways to move and different solutions. So it's, that's the key point is I'm not a constraint is not, here's how you do it. It's like something to make you explore different ways of doing it. 
Right. So it's not a rule. It's not a yes. must, right? Yes. It's a possibility. Yes. And another example that I talk a little bit about in the book, there's this group in Ireland that developed these things called chin-up goggles. They're basically sports glasses with a little piece of plastic at the bottom. So you can't look. If you want to look down while you're dribbling, you have to put your head down. So you're not, you know, so this is really going to make force me to dribble using different information. I'm going to have to start to learn to use proprioceptive information to dribble. I can't dribble by looking at the ball <laughs> with, it, with with these things. So it's, it's, it's a constraint. It's taken away the solution of watching the ball while I dribble and making me learn something else. We're going to go on a quick tangent there with the sure. goggles. So uh, again, I want, to, I want coaches to understand the goggles, how they benefit maybe to learning how to dribble. But really where the goggles should be used is that you should put them in the small-sided game or in the game with the goggles because it forces them to be able to have different things emerge, right? Yeah, exactly. And the, the idea is it's going to put, so if I, if I dribble by looking at, looking at the ball, yeah, with those goggles, I'm not going to be, I'm going to get the ball. People are going to steal the ball from me every time when I go in a small sided game, right? Because I'm looking down, I'm not going to see people coming. I'm not going to be able to make good passes. I'm going to have turnovers. So I'm kind of putting pressure on to, to you to do something else, right? Um, without telling you what that is. Yeah, that's exactly the idea. Okay. So talk to us then about the problem with using guidance. Cause again, it's, it's, it's okay. But if we use it too long, there's a danger to it too, isn't there? Yeah, you definitely want to, you, you know, I think, um, you know, for example, at some point you need to switch back to five on five in basketball, right? Regular basketball. You, you, yeah. you, you need to, um, you know, these uh, constraints and these practice activities are meant to, uh, you know, highlight certain, uh, you know, actions and solutions. But yeah, the athletes need to learn how to, they got to put them into the full thing for sure. So a lot of coaches have seen like mats that, players are learning how to move their feet on this mat prior to a dribble move. They start uh, shoulder width and then they jump out to the side. So there's say too wide and then they drive the ball. So using that mat as an initial emphasis or learning point is fine. But if we're doing it all the time, they don't know how to have it emerge naturally. Right? Yeah. That's another point, kind of a really classic motor learning effect. Um, you know, things like the mat where it's giving you kind of, um, we call it like extrinsic information, information you don't naturally get from your own body. Yes. If you, and then we can get that in all sports. Like I can measure bat speed with my baseball players and all these things, golf, you know, launch angle and things like that. What we don't want to do is if you have too much of that, then you start tuning out your own intrinsic feedback, right? Your ability to sense where your feet, how far apart your feet are, right? You have sensors in your muscles and joints that can detect that. And in, what you need to do is learn to kind of tune into that information. And if we get too much external from a coach or some technology, you're not going to do that. So you're right. We you want to balance it out for sure. So coaches, mats, cones, goggles, tennis balls, pylons, all these things. They're okay, but we got to remove them because they don't play with them. In the yeah. Game, right? Yeah. You, you, you definitely, you, at some point you got to get to the, to the real thing and, and, you know, getting, you know, with any kind of coaching method, one of the, I found this is one of the hardest things to deal with in my career as kind of a consultant is getting things, I call it, make them sticky. So we can get you to change your technique the way we want it and get rid of some flaw that we don't like in practice, but then the athlete invariably gets in the game and it comes right back, right? So we do need to work on how to get from, you know, these, when we have these constraints or slightly artificial kind of drills. Do, how do we make it stick in the game? 
and constraints don't have to be a full team, right? We can have different constraints for different players. And I kind of give the example of a buffet that if I take Rob to the buffet, he can eat anything he wants because he's so good. But certain players can only have two things at the buffet because that's what they can handle now. So can you talk about all this individualization as well that can happen with this? Yeah, I think that's, you know, a good point. You know, constraints are really purposeful, individual. You know, we're trying to get, so an example that I use a lot. So sometimes I'll, I'll work with players, you know, I do some with ice hockey and you get a player that's all, they do the same thing every time. They, they, they've grown up, maybe they were bigger than all the kids when they were younger. They, they do try to physically get by someone and get by their, their defender by, you know, moving them out of the way physically. And when they get to a higher level, that doesn't work anymore, right? Because their other defenders are just as strong. So what you kind of do for that player, I want to take away that for a while to, in practice, let, make you do something else, make you get by by, you know, moving the puck or, or you no know, placement of the puck. So, you know, taking away things. So, yeah, you want to kind of shape it and constrain based on where you want that individual athlete to go, right? And what they have. And, and so, yeah. For sure. We want to customize it. I can't remember the podcast, but it was like a brilliant podcast that stuck out to me that you did. And I think you talked about soccer, but you talked about some of the dangers of constraints. And I think coaches, again, stick with certain constraints too long to the point that players learn how to almost cheat. And then it isn't simulating the game. And I'll give you a quick example. Say we do a three on two drill. We remove a player. So there's more decisions in a sense. So there's an advantage somewhere and players have to find the advantage. So the pa first pass, someone has to drive the basketball to the basket, but our constraint is there must be one pass out before it's live. Mm. Well, the problem with that now is that a smart defender would know that what don't they have to cover? Yeah, yeah. They don't have to cover the dribble. So then <laughs> right. suddenly we don't have something natural emerging, right? Yeah, for sure. I think what there's a couple of things there. One, yeah, that the as much as you can, kind of the rule based constraints. I think are less effective, you know, sometimes it's all you have um, versus, you know, a physical constraint where there's no option because the rule ones, yeah, people are come up with very creative ways to get around it, you know, in an artificial way. Um, yeah. So that's one point. And the other one is what you really, really want to avoid is somehow designing practice and constraining so that people are going to develop a solution that's not going to work once you get back in the full game. You know, the example I always use in, you know, baseball practice, you know, hitting off a pitching machine where it's the same speed every time, you can learn to time your swing basically from the sound of the machine or when it you certain distance away from the chute, I start my swing. That doesn't work at all when pitch speeds are varying and the conditions are varying. So you don't want to develop a solution, you know, create a conditions where they develop a solution that's not going to transfer well, for sure. Hey coach, we have a new sponsor that you guys are going to love. Symbol is the stock market for sports that allows you to profit off your sports knowledge. On Symbol, you can trade sports teams like stocks and every time your team wins, you earn cash. Using your sports knowledge on Symbol to buy low, sell high and earn cash payouts when your team wins. Join the 7,000 plus early adopters who have started to invest in their favorite team. Visit www.symbol.com to create a free account. And when you deposit, make sure you use the promo code SD to make your deposit risk-free. Uh, that's great. It's yeah. good to know in terms of those yeah. things. And uh, I think the other thing about constraints that uh, coaches talk about a lot in basketball is that it's, and I don't know, I'd love to get your thoughts. It's better to give the constraint to the defense 
because then that helps offense emerge with more possibilities as opposed to constraining the offense. Is there any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a good point. I think, yeah, I haven't really thought about it. One, one thing I like to do in that point is actually, um, you know, in this sounds, you break down this kind of idea that there's defense and offense, <laughs> you know, yeah. some of the, the big innovations, you know, the, uh, the one I always point to would be I'm Canadian. So ice hockey, I remember the New Jersey devils, right. In hockey, you know, in hockey, it used to be, you know, the, you play offense coming this way, then you're on defense and the middle of the ice is just when you transition between offense and defense. And the New Jersey Devils invented this thing called the neutral zone trap, where they basically played in the middle <laughs> and they they messed up this, this category of offense and defense. People didn't know what to do because they were being offensive and defensive at the same time. And they were very, very successful with that. So I think that's one thing I would say to that. But um, yeah, I think um, I think there can be both. Uh, I think you're right. You don't want to be, you, when you want that creativity and things in offense, whereas you know, in, especially in basketball, there's defense, you know, there's more responsibilities than creativity, right? You, you want players to, to be in certain positions. You don't want them to creatively run across the court and, and out of position and block someone. So I think you're right. It, it, I think that's a good point is, you know, the amount of variability and things you add to practice kind of have to be proportional to the actual, you know, in your sport, right? Um, you know, I was example, like in sprinting, you know, there's not a lot of variability in the way you run. There's some versus uh, NFL football, <laughs> NFL running back has to have a lot of variability in how they run. They have to dodge people, change speeds. So you want more variability in practice. So I think the same would apply to offense versus defense, right? You want the, a bit more structure and, but I think you can do some of the same things though, for sure. I, I loved hearing your thoughts on that. And, uh, Getting a little bit more specific, some of the things in the book, but also I think the things that basketball coaches need to kind of consider a little bit more is that you speak in your book about the importance of creating variability in practice, which you've already talked about. But maybe what are some easy takeaways for basketball coaches looking to do this? Um, adding variability, some easy takeaways. Yeah, I think, you know, just, um, you know, try it. You know, there's not one right answer, right? Uh, I think part of the message from this is this isn't just an alternative set of drills, mm -hmm. right? So try things, you know, try, uh, you know, okay, let's vary the distances. Um, also there can be, you know, there's, there's something to be said for teaching a, the athletes to problem solve. So not all of the things you do in the game have to be variation in the practice have to be variations that occur in the game. Right. So an example of this is like in soccer, we play this sport futsal with a smaller ball. No one ever introduces a smaller ball in the soccer game, right? So it's a variation. So doing things that maybe wouldn't actually occur in the game at all can be beneficial as well too. So I think having fun with it and just kind of, um, you know, playing with the shooting drills or whatever kind of thing you're doing, I think is, is the way that I would go. And, and with a shooting drill in specific, and you mentioned shooting before, I mean, we never shoot in a game without pr prior to shooting, making a decision and that decision based on perception, decision, skill execution. So when we do all these shooting drills that are void of decisions, it's much harder to transfer that to the game. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, there's obviously basketball, like I said, there's obviously it's a 
there's something to be said for practicing a completely open jump shot because it does occur. I think we just don't, the amount we practice it is not proportional to the amount it actually occurs in the game, right? We need, um, you know, right, decisions to get into what space, you know, where I'm going to shoot from. Um, I think you're right, it's really important. Um, you know, with the way we move and, and is very different depending on when we have to make a decision about what we're going to do versus when it's, um, it's also, you know, there's a big point that we haven't really touched on injury prevention, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when do athletes get hurt is when mostly when they do unplanned, movements, right? When they have to cut suddenly or what do we practice mostly in practice planned movements, right? We're not giving them their body a chance to develop the variability in, in the movement to adjust to these things, right? So, so I think that's another big issue too, right? Right. Um, you, when you know exactly where you're going to shoot from everything, I think it's very different than when you're trying to look for openings and things. So you have to, I think, prepare the body for, for that as well. Well, and I was going to come to that and that's, I'm glad you brought it up because another part of this is obviously conditioning that you're, you're conditioning the way the game's played. So, you know, these kind of separate isolated conditionings maybe become less important as well. But the other part is you're less likely to get injured because you're more engaged and more focused, aren't you, when you're actually playing offense versus defense? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, you're right. You know, that sometimes when people get hurt, when they're not fully there, um, when they're tired, when they're, you know, when they're recovering from an injury, over-focusing. So, yeah, I think that's definitely a part of it. And I think, you know, it just makes sense, right? If you're going to jump and you land the exact same way every time, right? you're going to place stress on the exact same body parts every time versus if you're going to learn to jump and you can add a little variability to it, right? You're just, you're distributing the forces more. And there's some, there's some great work now showing that, you know, you actually, if you develop practice that encourages this variability, you get reduced the, you know, the factors for ACL injuries and and things like that. And it makes sense to me again, because you're, you're, you're training and preparing for the actual conditions of the Mm -hmm. game. Yeah. Um, you also talk about, by, by the way, coaches, a huge takeaway when you start listening to Rob and reading his book is just that as coaches, we should be using learning language more. And I feel like instead of calling players players in practice, if we call them learners, we talk about adaptability, we talk about some of these things that you talk about so much that I think we connect players better to it being in a learning environment. And that's already what you talked about, the difference between Steph Curry pregame. He's mm-hmm. not trying to learn. He's mm-hmm. trying to get comfortable. But yes. practice is different. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, a classic thing that we teach in motor learning classes <laughs> always is the difference between performance and learning, right? Performance is looking good, right, in the moment. Learning is being good in the future, right? Getting better in the future. And the, the two are very different, right? Like I said before, looking good doesn't always make you better in the future. So, yeah, I think, I think yeah, that's, I think it's right at, you know, one of the things that people complain a lot about in this area, and I, I tried to do a little bit better job in the book, is terminology. So, you know, there's a lot of terminology if you drive right in. Um, so I tried to, people probably still think there's a lot when they read my book, but I tried to go a little bit less on that. But I do really think there's benefits. Um, one of the things I've really, over the years, done is come, I've seen coaches know a lot of this stuff already. The, I, we, we call it in the research, we got experiential knowledge, right? And, but I really think there's a benefit to hanging it on, you know, scaffolding it on top of the theory um, by using terms and connecting it with terms and ideas. 
You know, the analogy sometimes I use is becoming a chef versus using recipes, right? Um, when, there's lots of coaches you, you read about, oh, that sounds like a good drill. But if you don't really understand what each of the ingredients of it doing, you have no way of it changing it, adjusting. But if you're a chef, you know, okay, that butter and oil do the same thing. <laughs> I can switch them, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I think that's a really important. I think the re I really believe not just because it's my area. I think there's a value to trying to connect with some of the the theory, the language of learning sciences for sure. Well, and I'd say the other thing circles back to what you said earlier, which is this education part of it helps players, administrators, uh, parents all understand and buy in more. And that, that's what I've found is I've taken time to be able to explain it to people. For example, if I show up at a camp in the summer and there's 80 kids there, I meet with the parents first and I tell them, listen, if you're used to perfectly organized lines, this is not the place. And I explain why so that they understand because they're only used to seeing this other version, right? Yeah, for sure. I think that's a great, a great point, getting the buy-in and getting people, you know, and, and the, I, that going back to the idea we talked about, the, the kind of co-adaptive, you know, it's not, you don't have to be mysterious as a coach. You know, you can tell players what you're trying to achieve and, you know, what the goal of these different things are. Um, and the parents, I think you can be, uh, you know, um, superficial, they'd be, um, accountable and, and, and uh, open about what you're trying to achieve. You might not want to get into too much specifics about what you're doing because you, you know, get people overly focused on their body or what the technique, things like that. But yeah, no, I think that's, that's a really important point. And, um, you know, emphasizing, like we said, how we learn is not going to look great all the time. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. 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 And also to say, listen, we're going to like, it's, it's going to look like we're playing more basketball. And that's not what you're used to seeing at a camp. It's like you're used to seeing people like one rep, isolated in space and all that stuff. And instead, we're going to play the game and have it emerge through games. So, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it's easier said than done, of course. Yeah, it is. And I, I recognize we're, we know a lot of us were trying to talk about how we can and also recognize, you know, as a youth coach, you have to balance winning you're with your team versus the long term development of your athletes. Right. And that that affects your player choice, right? From overplaying a player that's better than the rest right now or taller, um, as opposed to kids that need the time to develop. And so it's, a, I'm not, I recognize those are really difficult challenges for the coach. It's easy for me to say to do this and do that, but coaches have to deal with these realities. And I, you're right. I think being, um, you know, more upfront and, you know, explaining why I think is a good way to tackle that for sure. I'd love to get your thoughts on this too, which is, uh, it comes back to how do we know it works? One of the ways is obviously to be able to connect what happens in practice to a game. I encourage all coaches to create a video edit of practice to game clips. And that helps connect to say, hey, this is what we're working on in a game or in a practice. And here it is helping you in a game or helping us in a game. Can you talk sure. a little bit more about this video connection and evidence? Yeah, I think, you know, I think, um, I, that's a great uh, lesson. And I think we just had, you know, we do this thing related to my podcast about journal clubs where we get people together and we were talking about how we use video. You know, the traditional way you use video is corrective. Oh, look at you. We were supposed to, you went the wrong way on this play. <laughs> Whereas I think, I think the way you described is a perfect way. You know, we want to move the ball more. Look, look at this perfect way you did this in the game and we scored, you know, I think connecting, uh, 
the practice, you know, why we want to do it and seeing an outcome is a great, great tool for a coach. And even point, you know, look, okay, we missed, not that you made a mistake, but look, there was a, a gap there that we missed. We could have driven to the hoop here. You know, what is, how can we change or practice to, to make players more likely to do that, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I think giving kind of feedback and um, getting, you know, that people are moving in the right direction, um, you know, showing that they, you know, how, oh, look, you, you know, you adjusted to this play broke down, but you, you, we, you created something out of nothing, you know, cause that's really one of the main benefits of this pro- approach, right. Is the adaptability The we're going to see it's not scripted. Like you said, play, it's going to, we're going to see great things emerge in unexpected situations. Cause you, you have the tool, we're giving you the tools to do that. It's, it's great stuff. And uh, I want to go just to two of your phrases, I guess your phrasing, uh, keep them coupled. Can you mm-hmm. share that with us? Yeah. So that's the idea kind of back to the, the cones and the idea that, you know, our perception of is, is fundamentally coupled with action, right? So I act based on information I get from the environment. Like, like I said, I, I go left to get away from you coming to the right. Right. So when we, in all you soccer is the example, when we get you to dribble around cones, we're getting you to act with no information, right? There's no reason to go left versus right around the cone other than the coach told you, right? There's nothing that's fake, right? So what we like to do instead of getting you to learn to control the ball um, with, with cones is have you play tag, right? So I try to control the ball while someone's trying to run up and touch you. What's the difference there is when I go left with the ball, I do so because you're coming at me to touch me from the right, right? My action of the dribbling is functional to get away from you. It's driven by information I pick up from your body to see that you're lunging right. So that, that's the fundamental idea. As much as we can, keep the actions we want driven by the information, right? That another example is the weave, right? The reason you pass to someone is because the spacing <laughs> between players, they're open. <laughs> you see the, right? When you do a weave, you're kind of removing, it's, it's phone, it's fake, right? It's fake passing. Um, there's no decisions. It's not driven by the information that actually makes you pass a ball. So um, that, that's the idea of that. Well, and that leads me into the next one, which <laughs> is this concept of fake unopposed drills and your phrasing, which we can never plug back in. Yeah, the the idea that you you know you can take a skill, break it apart into you know hitting off a tee in baseball practice or dribbling around cones, and then put it back into where it's it's in the game and it's driven by information. I I think is fundamentally flawed, right? I think that's the the you know like I said the example of the kid that can dribble between their legs and around their back and do a million things, and then you get them in the game and they don't know how to get around someone or, you know, that that's a, you know, it's a, an aesthetic versus an actual skill. I, I think uh, you, um, you can't just because you can do these things. And there's, like we said before, that the, the transfer is so specific, you know, and the, the example, one of the examples I, I love and I give in the book is, is my favorite is Albert Pujols, the baseball player, when he was, he was an all-star tried to hit off Jenny Finch, who was a softball pitcher. And softball, the only difference, it's a little closer and the ball's bigger. He could not put the bat on the ball, right? How did his technique of hitting not transfer to softball? (laughs) He'd been practicing forever. 
because of the change. It's different. It's different information. The, the, these little differences matter, right? So the idea that we can create this fake environment where you learn something and then plug it back in, I think it is flawed. I love that example. That's such a great example to be able to drive that home. And, you know, a lot of coaches can relate to this in, in golf, right? If you're hitting on the driving range repeatedly with your driver over and over again, you feel pretty good about your driver, but yeah. it doesn't always connect the same when you go and play on. And wait a minute, I was just hitting my driver so well, but now yeah. the conditions are completely different when you actually play a round of golf. Yeah. I talked about this. I put, I put a post on Twitter about this. I was thinking about it. The idea we have a, in a lot of sports is that, you know, technique, whether it's your shooting technique, your three-point or golf swing is like this fragile glass vase, right? Once we get it down, we don't want to do anything to mess with our rhythm or timing or to, to mess it up. So we want to, we want to keep it safe. And, and to me, that's a recipe for it to smash into pieces, right? What you really want to do in practice is try to mess it up, right? Um, we were t- like a lot of golf players, know how to do weird like they like they'll deliberately try to hit it off the toe right they'll deliberately try to do something funny with their swing that you know mess it up in practice so i think the same with with basketball shooting you know i think they, this idea of trying to keep everything the safe and once we get it down we have to always do that way is the wrong way to think about it getting it adaptable so you can actually you know make even deliberately do something wrong or funny, I think can be beneficial. I, I love this. And, and, and if you want to think about it this way, like someone phrased it to me as like, so uh, an expert in free throw shooting should be able to miss wherever they want. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not about so, making it because there's a lot of actual variability with making it. It's actually, mm-hmm. can you miss exactly where you want? Yeah. Could I, could I bounce it off the back of the rim so it came back to me yeah. on purpose over and over again? Can I you hit know, the right corner of the rim. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. yeah. Like, and, uh, you know, and uh, yeah. So I put a lot of, can I put extra spin on it? You know, you, we think, you know, you don't want to mess with your free throw technique when you, once you get it down. But, uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot of evidence to show that even like when a player has sort of, you know, you know, flaw when they're in their technique, maybe they shoot it too high. Sometimes even the best thing to do is even exaggerate that, get them to do it even more because it gives them awareness of kind of some of the, the things going on. So yeah, I think that's a great example. Oh, you just hit on something. Can you talk about that exaggeration in teaching? Because I find it so important in sport to get players to sometimes understand what you actually want them to do is to exaggerate sometimes you know, what they are doing or what they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. I think, you know, that we have lots of, I give lots of examples in the book, you know, one, I work in baseball a lot. Sometimes you have pitchers that kind of land, they don't quite land square on their foot, which, you know, over the long term could cause knee injuries. So what we do is we take them into sand, put them in a sandbox. And when they land like that, now they almost fall over. So we've exaggerated the error. It kind of makes people not consciously aware of it, but aware of it. And in, in, you kind of correct around that. And there's been a bunch of studies, you know, with golf, um, where you, you, instead of actually giving them the instruction that would correct it, if you actually exaggerate it, you, you, you get more awareness and your body figures out how to solve the, the problem. So this kind of, we sometimes we call it method of amplification of error, <laughs> right? It, it seems to be beneficial. It's giving your body more information about the kind of the solution space, you know, the how, so, you know, I think one of the fundamental ideas, what we want to do is learn and practice the relationship between 
movement of my body and the outcomes in the world, right? You know, I think, like you said, with a free throw, learning how to, what, not again, not consciously, what muscle activity produces a shot that goes off the left side of the rim is valuable, right? You're learning this, how your body really creates action outcomes. Well, even if it's the wrong one, that learning that relationship is super valuable. I think it makes you know how to solve problems, you know, learning how to get the jump shot in the middle of the hoop when I'm tired or I need to lean back more because there's someone in my face, right? I think that's really, really valuable to an athlete. Well, especially if we think about layups, like the variability on layups relative to like we sometimes with these on-air layups, like really the only decision is based on my location to the rim. Mm -hmm. But suddenly we add one defender and now I've got this perception action relative to the one defender before I even look at the rim. So right. we need to create that variability to simulate again, the environment and the decisions that happen prior to the skill. Yeah, for sure. And um, there's some great basketball work I talk about by the group in the Netherlands looking at shooting technique, you know, um, you know, using kind of occlusion to get people to make kind of pick up late information. I think that's a good example. Layups are a good example too of you. Sometimes you need to like drive through the thing. And then at the last, you have to pick up the hoop the last minute and you need to kind of adjust then versus seeing it 12 steps before, you know, in the typical drill where you can pre-plan everything. Um, these un, you know, again, that's kind of the unplanned versus planned movements. Again, um, you get very different kind of results in those situations. One last thing on shooting, cause you spoke about this on a recent podcast about the jump shot and how we want repeatability and movement, but in particular variables such as release height and angle and not the same exact repeated movement in the joints. So mm -hmm. can you just talk about that a little bit? Cause I think, I think we think shooting is this thing that we should just have completely repeatable exactly the same way every time, and then we'll have success. But that's not exactly true. No, no. And it goes back to, you know, the, the, I start the book talking about the work of Nikolai Bernstein, who's this Russian scientist who studied, you know, he studied blacksmiths, really, really experienced blacksmiths. And he, he, he measured the motion and he found out the way that they hit this chisel, the exact same spot every time is actually by using slightly different movements. And the way that that's the fundamental idea that, you know, to release the ball at the same angle and height every time requires slightly different movements of your body, you know, because the conditions change, the constraints change. I, I, my, I start off a bit too much because, and I need to adjust. I get tired. There's a defender in the way, you know, I'm playing outside, there's wind. So to produce the same outcome, you know, in Bernstein's famous phrases, repetition without repetition. I repeat the outcome, but not by repeating the movement the exact same way every time. And it kind of throws into the face the idea of repetition. The idea I want to take a million jump shots from the same spot and repeat it over and over, rote repetition. The idea that's the way to become skillful is really one of the things that people, a lot of people believe is what we really want to change. Um, you need to learn how to produce the same outcome under different conditions and adjust it. Yeah. So that's kind of the idea. And that's, that's when you know, you've learned. Mm -hmm. right? Yes. Which sure. is the most important part. And talk to me just quickly. I'm going to ask you another question about shooting. Sure. Talk to me quickly then about this concept of form shooting, where we go out and we stand two feet from the basket and we repeat this form over and over again. And my point to most coaches is you never shoot like that when you're that close to the basket, it's a completely different movement pattern. 
So if we do any form shooting, arguably we should move it to 13 to 15 feet where it's more likely that's how you're going to shoot. But talk to me about that whole concept. Yeah, this is where, you know, I would much rather, you know, try. So usually it's very prescriptive kind of thing. So, right. You're telling the athlete, no, you need to get your elbows up. You know, you know, you need to snap your wrists. Um, I would much rather get, if you really think that there's these fundamental invariants, again, the features that have to be there for effective shot, let's get those to kind of emerge from the constraints again. You know, whether it's an analogy, some instruction about kind of the classic one in basketball is reaching up and getting a cookie out of a cookie jar, right? So you're, you're getting the movement you want without describing what you're doing with your elbows and your knee, your wrists and so on. So, so yeah, I think form, you know, why, I'd ask, why do you want that? What, what's the purpose of that? And, and we think of an, a constraint that will take away whatever the athletes in doing instead. Right. So, so yeah, I think, and then the, yeah, the club moving out from distance is almost like the building the skill up again. We're going to, okay, when you're really close, you don't really need to put your lower body into it. So we're going to, you know, get you to learn that part. Then we're going to put it all back together, which again, I don't think is is the best way to do it. No, it's not at all. And uh, just as we move forward, Sen, you've talked about the role of the coach in this type of coaching, but also just can you quickly touch on how the role of a coach changes as players become better with these perception uh, and decision type of things that we want them to do in a game. How does my role change over time? Yeah, that that's a great question. I think, you know, it becomes more, you know, uh, I think about focusing on more specific things, you know, you know, I, I like kind of the, you know, Carl Newell has a good model and this is kind of Bernstein's idea too. You know, when you start working in athletes, you're really just trying to get them like this general coordination solution, you know, how can, what's the basic structure of my jump shot going to be? Um, and you, I think as a, when you're working out with the athlete first, place, that's what you want to get them. You want to get them to explore all over <laughs> different, you know, if they're in the wrong kind of, you know, landscape is the term we like to use versus when they get more and more skilled, I think you, you want to kind of, you're working on more optimization, right? You're getting them spoke, focus on specific uh, things they need to adapt to, you know, maybe they're, their shots, shooting percentage is a bit lower in the fourth quarter. Let's get used to fatigue, you know, so you're, you're really doing much less getting them to explore these wide variations and really more focused variability around, you know, specific things you want to work on. So that, that, that's kind of, I do, I, I have a, a tease. Um, I have a follow-up book planned um, eventually. Awesome. Um, and that's one of the things I want to talk about in the book. How do we, get to the point of more optimization when you have a a more skilled athlete. Coaches, how we learn to move a revolution in the way we coach and practice sports skills. And then of course, perceptionaction.com and uh, host of perception action podcast. And uh, you know, Rob, if you will, with me, we'll put together a list and we can tweet it together. Maybe some of the podcasts where coaches could start as a starting point Uh, So that they, as you said, don't get intimidated by kind of the language and the depth, because honestly, truthfully, I read this stuff. I know this stuff. And sometimes I get intimidated by the depth that you guys go into. (laughs) Me too, to be honest. Some of the, which is a compliment. The the, the dynamical systems. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I just want coaches to know that there's so much practical information from what you share. 
And uh, this is a must read book and so many of your podcasts are must listen to. So thank you for sharing the game with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That was a really fun conversation. Hey coach, the best player development is coach development. It's never too late to join basketballimmersion.com. And now we've added two more courses, one on youth basketball coaching and one on advanced pick and roll concepts. Now you have over 25 courses to be able to learn from in addition to 600 videos and 70 plus masterclasses from experts around the world. In addition to an engaged, like-minded community, go to basketballimmersion.com or DM at bballimmersion on Twitter to get started today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter. Mm-hmm.